So, today's sermon, we're going to continue on in Colossians chapter 1. I've been given the task of verse 11 this morning. And today's sermon really will be in two parts. The first part will be a hefty one. We're going to exhaust, we're going to really exhaust what strengthened with all power according to his glorious might means. And then the second point will kind of be our wrap-up point of for the very endurance and patience with joy that God strengthens us for. So, continuing on in Paul's most glorious prayer for the church of Colossae, he writes that he desires that the saints would be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, because this, like Pastor Mark explained last week, is the fruit of the main clause for the prayer, the, Paul's entire prayer, listed in verse 10, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That is the main clause in the entire prayer. That's what Paul's aim is for us, so that we, as followers of Christ and the church of Colossae then, would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing to him. However, before we address the specifics Of the text in verse 11, we break it down. I want to, I think because we need to, address what Scripture says about pleasing God as the whole purpose of Paul's prayer is that the church of Colossae and us, that our lives would be pleasing to God. And for what does Scripture say is the only way to please God? In Hebrews 11, verse 6, the author writes, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. And in Romans 14, 23, Paul writes that whatever is not from faith is sin. Sin obviously is not pleasing to God. So clearly faith is the only way for us to be pleasing to God. Now, what is faith? Before we describe faith biblically, we have to understand that this basis for today's sermon is absolutely vital Because Paul writes two disclaimers in this specific text in verse 11 that we often skip or misinterpret or think, eh, what's the big deal? Those disclaimers are that this strengthening is not our strength, but God's. And that the endurance and patience we need from God's strength will be accompanied by joy or it's all not. So in the same sense that everything not done by faith is in sin, everything not done by God's strength and with joy is not pleasing to God. In other words, any human effort and striving that we do in our own strength and or without joy is sin. Anything that we do in our own strength And without joy is sin. And for what is faith? Because there are huge misconceptions and misapplications for what faith is. And several of us probably have a very poor understanding of biblical faith. So much so that this misunderstanding of of biblical faith causes us to live very unfaithful lives in which we operate in our own strength and without joy. Or if there is joy in our lives, it's often probably manufactured joy 
that is nothing more than happiness based on circumstances. You see, faith is not just a mental ascension to certain biblical truths. I.e., having faith does not just mean that you mentally believe that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. You don't just mentally believe that scripture is true and without error and sufficient for all teaching, for correction and for training and righteousness. James tells us that even the demons believe that much. And are the demons saved? Obviously not. You see, James is very clear that true and genuine faith will be accompanied by good works. He's very clear. Or it is not genuine faith. This shouldn't surprise us. Jesus tells us in John 8, 31, that our proof, that our proof of discipleship comes from our continuing in of the word. Meaning that if we as a church people are not continuing in the word, we are not true disciples of Jesus. He also in John 14, 15 declares that our love for him is only real if we obey him. Again, meaning that if we are not obedient to Jesus, obedient to his word, we don't actually love him. It doesn't matter what our lips profess if our actions don't back them up. Further on, Jesus rebukes his disciples in Luke 6, 46 for their hypocrisy of their profession of his position as Lord. He says to them, why do you call me Lord, Lord, yet do not do what I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, yet do not do what I say? And he goes on to say that the one who obeys him is like a house on a strong foundation. And when the flood comes, it withstands the storm, whereas the one that doesn't obey is like the house built on no foundation. And the storms destroy the house. Only one of those houses is saved. The one with a good foundation, the one that obeys Jesus. The one whose profession of his lordship matches their actions in life. Just coming to church on Sunday and calling ourselves Christians does not save us. However, can we as sinful human beings operating in our own strength do anything good? No. Romans 3.12 and John 15.5 make that abundantly clear. No one does good, not even one. And apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. So then, a mental ascension of biblical truths plus man-made good works still equals sin and hell. This is why the gate to destruction that Jesus talks about in Matthew 7 is so broad. Satan worshipers, Buddhists, atheists, Hindus, Mormons, New Agers, and professing Christians who operate in their own strength and do good. I mean like really good works, really good Christian things like miracles and praying and healing people go to hell. You might say that's a little harsh. That's a little narrow. Don't put in professing Christians with the atheist. 
Those aren't my words. They're Jesus's. In Matthew chapter 7, and in the story of the rich young ruler. If we remember in, in the story of the rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? Already he has the wrong standing point. What must I do? We can't do anything to be saved. And Jesus responds to him, well, you've heard what was said. You must honor your father and mother. And it goes on to list several other commandments. And the rich young ruler says, I have kept all of these from my youth. Jesus says, okay, go and sell your possessions to the poor. He couldn't do it. He walked away. His man-made good works and man-made obedience according to the law got him nothing. Which is why Jesus responds and says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You see, our weak Christian culture has diminished the gospel from a daily taking up of our cross, which Jesus says the gospel is. Pick up your cross and follow me. To a mere say you're a Christian, do good things, go to church sometimes. In fact, if you really want to be a good Christian, read your Bible sometimes, pray sometimes, serve, tithe 10%, nothing more, nothing less. That's disgusting. That isn't Christianity and it isn't going to save you. Why? Like Jesus says, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Meaning the only way to be saved, church, is through God. However, every example that I just listed above, besides the true convert who repents, dies to self, trusts in Jesus to be their life, goes to hell because their faith is in vain. Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see, genuine faith, Paul says, is crucifying your flesh so that Jesus lives in you. This is not just trivial Christianese. Jesus lives in you if you are a true convert. The, the, the mark of being a true convert is dying to yourself. It's crucifying your flesh. In the same way that Jesus literally died on the cross, we literally have to die to our sins so that Jesus would live in us. This is why Paul says in Romans 6, 11, for all that have true faith, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Not just trivial Christianese where we mentally assent to this truth. Yeah, I get it. Cool. God's forgiven me. And now I go on operating in my own strength. That's not Christianity. Dead to sin, alive in Christ Jesus. Literally in Christ Jesus where he lives in us and us in him. Does that mean then that we will live, that we will live in sinless perfection after conversion? Absolutely not. First John one tells us that we are liars if we say that we no longer sin. And the great apostle Paul expresses so clearly in Romans 7 the ongoing battle with our sin nature and our, and our desire to serve Jesus even after conversion. However, as John Owen so famously wrote, be killing sin or sin will be killing 
you. Because the mortification of our sin, the crucifying of our flesh, is clear fruit of authentic faith in Jesus because only in Jesus is there any victory over sin. See, Paul knows this reality and that is why Paul, when Paul says be strengthened or being strengthened is so important because Paul knows that two of our easiest sins to commit are number one, operating in our own strength and number two, being joyless, being without joy. So when Paul writes being strengthened, he does not mean for the church to grow in their own strength, but in God's. Hence the phrase, according to his glorious might. That might is Jesus. That might that we need to grow in is Jesus. We are not to pray for God's help or for him to make us stronger. The point of the Christian life is not that we would all of a sudden be able to function on our own after giving a mental ascension to a biblical truth. That's ludicrous. That's not Christianity. But if we're being honest, that's how what many of us think the Christian life is. And if you think not me, the fact of the matter is, is that many of us probably live our lives like that. Just simply believing in some sort of mental way that we don't even know what that means and then going on in our Christian life in our own strength. Examples? How many of us read the Bible because we desire it? I mean, I mean really desire it. How many of us, when we read the Bible, it's because we love to read the Bible. We're just like, I can't wait to spend time in God's word this morning. Like you get up in the morning and you're jacked to read the Bible. That you desire it. That there is nothing better to you than reading the Bible. Like that you can really echo the same cry of of David in Psalm 119, where he talks about the word being more valuable than gold, yes, fine gold, and that there, there is nothing more that he wants to do than sit in the presence of the Lord through reading and meditating on the text. How many of us can actually say that? What about prayer? How many of us pray to God just simply to grow closer to him? Or is our prayer life clouded by endless petitions and requests made up to him that often are selfish? Or we pray and in our prayers, our minds often wander away to the point where we forget we're praying because we're not focused on God. What about coming here on Sunday? How many of us wake up Sunday morning and are jacked to come? How many of us consistently demonstrate love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Do we have patience towards our children and towards our spouse? Do we love sacrificially the way Christ loves us, those around us? Do we serve even when it is inconvenient for us? Do we read and pray out of duty or for selfish gain? Do we come to church because we want to or because we think we have to? You see, it is impossible to be pleasing to God when operating in our own strength. I hope that pondering those questions made us feel weak because that was my goal. And if it did, soak in that conviction. Repent of the fact that you and I often Often, if not always, 
operate in our own strength. Then praise God. Praise God not only for the grace that forgives us of that wretched sin, but praise God the, the, the fact that we don't desire him. Praise God that he, that he, in his grace, covers that iniquity. But what I'm talking about is praising God for his greatness within our weakness when we live in faith. You see, the reason we need the strength of Jesus, Paul says, is because we are weak. And if there is any area of our lives that we think we are strong in, Oh, let God humble our prideful hearts. You see, Andrew Murray, one of the great Christian writers of old, he says, there is no truth more generally admitted among earnest Christians than that of their utter weakness. We like to raise our hands and say, hallelujah, yep, I'm weak, I know it. I'm not good, I can't do anything good. But it stops there. Which is why he says, there is also no truth more generally, generally misunderstood and abused. Here as elsewhere, God's thoughts are heaven high above man's thoughts. The Christian often tries to forget his weakness. God wants us to remember it, to feel it deeply. The Christian wants to conquer his weakness and to be freed from it. God wants us to rest and even rejoice in it. The Christian mourns over his weakness. Christ teaches his servant to say, I take pleasure in infirmities. Most gladly, I will glory in my infirmities. The Christian thinks his weakness is his greatest hindrance in the life and service of God. God tells us that our weakness is the secret of strength and success. It is our weakness, heartily accepted and continually realized, that gives us our claim and access to the strength of him who has said, My strength is made perfect in your weakness. You see, the point of our weakness is that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, I boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. I boast because like Jesus says, his grace is sufficient for us and his power is perfected in our weakness, which is, like, which is why we, like Paul, should and can say, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Why? Because brothers and sisters in Christ, you are not alone in your lack of desire to read the word. You are not alone in your disgust of socializing. You are not alone in your inability to serve joyfully. And you're not alone in your thoughts that there are more important things to do than to pray. We are weak. In fact, we suck. We do. We suck. But if we stop there, we miss the point entirely. Paul's point is not saying recognize that you need Jesus, but his point is that in this recognition of your need for Jesus, you would do something about it. And that doing something is dying to self. It's ceasing to try and live the Christian life in your own strength, like so many of us do. Going back to Andrew Murray, he says that there are two ways to pursue holiness, to pursue Jesus. One is carnal and one is spiritual. He says the first one, the carnal way, is in which we put forth our utmost efforts and resolutions, trusting Christ to help us in doing so. Why is this carnal? Because we endeavor in this state to reform our old nature and to be made perfect in the flesh instead of putting it off and walking according to the new state in Christ. This simple like, woohoo, gun pow, like, okay, I, I believe in Jesus. Now I'm going to just like 
work on making myself holy and I just need your help, God, is ridiculous. That's not Christianity. That's carnal mind. That's somebody that doesn't understand the gospel. That's somebody whose faith is really in vain. So he says that the spiritual way to pursue Jesus is as those who have died to self and can do nothing. Our one care is to to receive Christ day by day and that at every step to let him live and work in us. Every single day, Christ living and working in us. It's the humble recognition of your sinful state, recognizing that you can't live the Christian life and you weren't even created to live the Christian life, but that you were created to die to self so that Christ may live in you. It's a full surrender over to Jesus where you say to him, God, I am a sinner and I hate that I sin and I hate my sin. I believe your word is true. I believe you died for my sins and conquered death so that I may live in you and you in me. I believe that you are Lord of my life. And I believe that your word will absolutely accomplish what you tell me it will accomplish. And for me, that is to grow and produce faith in my life so that I can grow in my dependence and my abiding in you. But why don't we live like that? Honest to God, we've made Christianity too hard. We don't trust the spirit of God to do what the spirit of God promises to do, which is to grow us through the word and through prayer. Instead, we operate in a sense that if we just do things with a good heart and out of our own strength and striving, then God will love us for that. And so the majority of us, if not all of us, wake up every single morning with that attitude. I'm going to go throughout this day and I'm going to do whatever I desire and whatever I please. And I'm going to do it with a Christian heart. And at the end of the day, hopefully the good outweighs the bad, whatever, and God will love me for that. Because, I mean, I do believe the Bible. I do believe that Jesus is God. And that's how we live. Thus, we actually don't trust the simplicity of what Jesus says when he tells us that his power is perfected in weakness. Because if we did, we would be a people marked by our soaking in of the word and our constant devotion to prayer out of a heart that recognizes our desperate need for him in every moment, just like the word tells us. I mean, our desperate need for him. Like, not just this Christian, like, yeah, I need Jesus. But like our desperate need for God to not only like cause the breath in our lungs, but literally in our spiritual sense for God to cause any sort of goodness in us. We need Jesus to abide in us and us in him so that we can do anything good, anything pleasing to him. And as we see in the word, the word commands us to have this dependence on him. In Joshua 1.8, he says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. The Bible. And Joshua, when writing this, he's just got the first five books of the Bible, three of which we probably never even read, and two of which we've just made into mere children's stories as a modern Christian culture. Those five books that Joshua is like, meditate on I mean, day and night, meditate on it. Don't even let it depart from your mouth. This seems to indicate that we should know and study scripture so much that it is our constant meditation in day and night and that scripture, scripture is constantly on our lips, right? Jesus says, for from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
And the psalmist says in Psalm 119.11, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. The word should be in our heart. And if the word is in our heart, then it's going to be in our lips. However, most of us here can recite more song lyrics or sporting statistics or facts about hunting, recipes for cooking, and random other facts for work and for daily life, yet we do not know the word. Oh, how misconstrued and wrong our priorities are. In fact, Scripture tells us we are not to eat just bread alone, but by the words that proceed out of the mouth of the Lord. How many times a day do we as a people eat? Three, at least. That's just our meals, let alone the snacks. We eat all the time. How many times a day do we read the Bible? Maybe once. For a lot of us. For a lot of us. And I I mean the word. Like, how many of us read the word? Not, Not a daily devotional. Not a verse of the day from your Bible app. Not like listening on your way to work. Like not listening to a good Christian podcast or sermon. Like, how many of us actually meditate in the word every single day? Like, honestly, if we're being real, we probably do that once, if not zero times a day for the average person here. The point of that verse is not to get us to read the Bible three times a day. He's not saying you, every, every meal that you eat, you need to match that with a meal in the Word. But what it is telling us is that we eat at least three times a day because our physical bodies need it. We eat because we need it. How much more do our spiritual bodies need the Word? That's the point. You see, the very fact that we don't think about these realities... Nor do, we, nor do we know a lot of the scriptures that are being talked about, show us all the more our need for the word. We have gone without and we have learned to be content without. And in regards to prayer, Romans 12, 12, and 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 are pretty clear. Be devoted to prayer and pray without ceasing. Can any of us honestly say that we are abiding by these exhortations? No. You see, if we're not in the word and in prayer, how are we going to have the strength to live the Christian life the way God designed? We aren't. Instead, we will operate in our own strength like we often do and not be people of true faith nor people of joy. And our Christian lives will be lived in vain and will not be pleasing to God. Because we do not trust him enough to die to self and live in him. So coming full circle, our pleasing of God is the point of Paul's prayer and the point of our existence. We were created to please and glorify God. But we cannot do that when we are living in our own strength. That is why God gave us Jesus. Yes, to be the sacrifice for our sins, but more than that. More than that, church people, Jesus comes and dwells in the heart of every true believer so that the life we live would be lived through him and his strength. It is only in this manner in which God can be pleased because God is holy and righteous and perfect and he cannot stomach anything less than that. Our righteousness, scripture says, is of filthy rags. Our best efforts in this Christian life fall way short. But thanks be to God in Christ Jesus our Lord, who works in us 
and lives in us and literally strengthens us by being our strength so that, as Paul says, we may endure and be patient with joy. To clarify, with joy means that if our enduring and our being patient is without joy, it is sin and done in vain. Joy can only be found in Christ. So Paul is saying that if our strength is of the glorious might of Jesus, rather than our own, then we will be joyful in our enduring and in our waiting. So what is Paul saying that we are to endure? What is Paul saying that we are to be patient for? Endurance and patience here both have connotations regarding trial and suffering. In fact, this same endurance is used by Paul in Romans 5, 3 through 5, about how God causes trials in our life to mold us, grow us, and cement our hope in him. I'm going to read it, and my translation uses the word perseverance. But Paul writes, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This idea of enduring and persevering that Paul is writing about, which we need the strength of God to have, is because God brings trials in our life. Like we got to get away from this this small, minute view of God that God just simply allows things to happen to us. God doesn't just allow things to happen to us. God brings everything into our life for a specific plan, for a specific purpose, to accomplish his divine will. And and that trial, that tribulation that he gives us, that he causes us, that he brings upon us, is to cause perseverance and endurance through exaltation of Christ, through joy that produces joy. Furthermore, this patience, this patience that Paul talks about, he's not just talking about like patience, like you're in line at McDonald's and you're standing in line to wait for your food. And, and Paul's saying that, that you need Jesus' strength to not get upset at the slowness of the employees at McDonald's. Like, yes, we still need Jesus' patience for those opportune times. But what he's saying is more of like the patience that we see Job have in the book of Job. That we see Paul endure in his life. Like in James 5, 10, and 11, where James recounts the patience of Job in his suffering. Like, just to flash back to the book of Job real quick, what happens to this godly man? You see, right away, all of his livestock is killed and stolen. His children die. All of his children die. His body then is inflicted with boils. And his response and his patience, because of the strength of God, is the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord forever. Do we respond to trial and tribulation like that? You see, Job didn't, in his, in his trial and tribulation, he didn't just fling this on the enemy and say like, ah, oh, curse that enemy who's wrecking my life. He looked to the divine and he said, this is brought on by God. This is brought on by God. And because it's brought in 
by God, I can worship. I can worship. For Paul is saying something that he often says. The Christian life isn't going to be easy. The Christian life is not going to be easy. Paul's gospel proclamation in Acts 14, is literally through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We have to understand, church in America, that the way we practice and view Christianity is not the way Christianity has been understood nor lived out from centuries on. And it's not the way Christianity is seen and lived out in other countries across the world. People who are Christians in most countries legitimately are persecuted, legitimately have trial and tribulation where that is brought on because of their faith, but also just the tribulations of life. I mean, people who die of starvation because of their Christianity, because they see in the gospel that trial and tribulation are a fruit of righteousness. We in, in modern America don't see that. We don't. We live in comfort. We live in ease. We don't have afflicted lives. Like the worst pain that some of us ever encounter is a friend being upset with us or a depression over a loss of a, of a, of a breaking up of a girlfriend or a boyfriend. Maybe falling into financial ruin, kind of, but there's programs in this country so that that doesn't happen. Like we don't experience trial and tribulation and persecution like the way scripture says that we will. Paul says, all who desire to live godly will be persecuted. The Christian life is one marked by trial and tribulation. This this is why Paul is so clear that we need to be strengthened by the glorious might of God for all endurance and patience with joy that God is going to bring on us. Because in Paul's mind, Christianity can't happen in any other way apart from trial and tribulation. It's going to happen. Paul went through several trials and tribulations more than we will ever endure or experience. Just read 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He talks about many sleepless nights on the run. He talks about being shipwrecked. He talks about getting stoned and being beaten and whipped. Like this dude experienced trial and tribulation unlike most of us will ever face. I was watching a movie last night called Collateral Beauty with Will Smith in it. I don't know if anybody's seen it. It's a good movie. It's a sad movie. Long story short, Will Smith in this movie, he's this joyful, zealous guy who, who created this awesome like advertising firm. And all of a sudden, the story just skips ahead three years later. And we come to find out that his child died. And his six-year-old girl died. His six-year-old daughter died and it wrecked him. It wrecked him so badly that he didn't talk to anybody for three years. He didn't talk to his business partners and his marriage ended in divorce. He couldn't cope with the fact that there was anything left to live for. In fact, at some point in time in the story, he's on the subway talking to someone depicted as death and he's yelling at them. And 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 he's like, God, God doesn't matter. I've heard the Christian answer. It doesn't matter. I've heard the Hindu answer. It doesn't matter. The Buddhist answer. It doesn't matter. The atheist answer. It doesn't matter. The scientist's answer. It doesn't matter. 
My daughter is gone and there's nothing that can take her back. And because of that reality, he lived in constant depression and turmoil for three years where he didn't talk to anyone. And his company kept going down and down and down and down. He didn't eat. He didn't sleep. He says in the movie he slept like six or seven hours a week. The problem, the reason I say that is because he had no hope. He had no reason to live for, he said. His, his rest, his peace, his joy was found in the life of his daughter. Our hope is found in Christ. The fact of the matter is that we often live our lives more like Will Smith than we do like Paul. We often live our lives like the faithless person who builds their house on, a, on, on no foundation. We call Jesus Lord, Lord. Yet when the storms that Jesus brings into our life come, we crash. We're not in the word more. We're not in prayer more. We're not joyfully worshiping God like Job did, like Paul does. We're like Will Smith who cowers into the state of depression and just says, oh, woe is me, and pities their life. We are to have joy in trial and temptation because they are meant for our good. If we have a weak theology that just allows for God to just allow things to happen to us, he's not a God that we can trust. He's not a God that we can serve. If, if God's plan for our life can be ruined or thwarted by the enemy bringing a trial into our life, what really does he protect us from? Nothing. God means these trials for our good. That's why Paul says we need the strength of God. We need the strength of Jesus to endure the trials that Jesus is going to bring in. Because we weren't meant to bear them on our own. And in our own strength, we definitely can't do it with joy. If you look at John 15 too, we see that Jesus prunes every branch that does not bear fruit in our life so that it will bear more fruit. In other words, Jesus prunes us which is a painful process so that we would be more like him. Like God brings this trial into our life and into our world so that we would abide in him and produce more fruit. It's like building our house on a more firm foundation and so that we who endure and be patient through the trial will rejoice. Peter explains this in 1 Peter 2.21 that we have been called to suffer just as Christ suffered, for he is our example. Like our Savior, our Lord, who went to the cross on our behalf, he paved the way that this life is going to look. He says in John 15, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. There's going to be trial. His life was marked with suffering. Our life too is going to be marked with suffering. And Jesus suffered more than anyone, yet Peter says he did so without reviling or making threats in return, but instead he continued to entrust himself to the Father. And like Hebrews 12, 2 tells us, he went to the cross with joy. Jesus suffered, not because he was unrighteous, but because he was righteous. And he did so without reviling, without offering up threats, without cursing God, but instead entrusting himself to God. And he did so with joy. Paul, throughout all of his trials and tribulations, 
did the same, which is why at the end of his life in Philippians chapter four, he is able to say, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And a few verses later, he goes on to say that he has found the secret to contentment throughout all of life's ups and downs and that the secret is the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension in Christ Jesus. The reason Paul can rejoice in trial and tribulation is because it's not Paul's strength that he's relying on. It's Christ's. Paul didn't have any reason to have peace or contentment if you look at his life. Yet Paul, much like he is praying for us, was strengthened with Jesus so that he was able to endure and be patient with joy. And in regards to temptation, because a very real aspect of the Christian life that Paul's talking about here too, in endurance and in patience, is how we handle temptation. In regards to temptation, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5 that Satan prowls around like a lion seeking to destroy us. But should this reality cause us anguish to the point that we live in a defeated lifestyle? No. Paul says that we need to endure and be patient with joy, even in the temptation and battle with sin. We've already looked at 2 Corinthians 12 and how Paul boasts in his weaknesses so that Jesus can be his strength and his deliverer. But look at his wording in Romans chapter 7, verse 24 and 25. After talking about how he, he doesn't do the things that he wants to do and he does the things that he doesn't want to do and he's just sickened by his flesh and his sin, even as a Christian, even as the great apostle Paul after his conversion, he's sickened by this reality of his sin. He says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And in the very next verse says, thanks be to Jesus Christ, our Lord. Wretched man that I am, thanks be to Jesus for setting me free. You see, Paul is disgusted by his flesh. We should be disgusted by our flesh. We should be disgusted by our sin. And we should be burdened by the fact that Satan is real and he wants to cause havoc in our lives. He wants us to be joyless. He wants us to be operating in our own strength. But we praise God for providing Jesus, the very one who comes to live in us and through us to produce the very righteousness that causes victory against sin. We have to have that mindset. You see, we cannot conquer sin by avoiding it or coming up with grandiose schemes of man that try and fight the battle with darkness against our own darkness. If we try to operate in our own strength, we are fighting dark with dark. And Satan is winning. You see, Satan doesn't want to convert all of us in this room to Satan worshipers. What Satan wants to do for all of us in this room is to be complacent, professing Christians that operate in their own strength without any desire to love Jesus more, to serve Jesus more, to grow in holiness. Jesus or Satan wants you to be complacent. Satan wants you to leave here today and say, ah, cool message, and continue to leave, to continue to live in your own strength. That's what he wants. He doesn't want you guys to stop coming to church. He just wants you guys to come here with deaf ears with blind eyes, with hardened hearts that say, I'm good, I've made it. I've done the Christian life, I've professed, I mentally believe I'm good and wake up every single morning doing what we've been doing for the last several years of our lives. The only victory against sin is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ in you. 
And in that battle, we should have joy because Christ has already won. So church, I know this was long, but I pray it is encouraging to you. I fear for so many souls amongst professing followers of Christ that true, confer- true conversions never took place because I see a lot of us operating in our own strength. We strive and we fight, but it's all in vain. Church, a lot of you guys have heard my story. A lot of you guys have been able to get to know me, whether at school or whether here or at youth group. You know my story. For 18 years of my life, I lived a nominal Christian life. At any given point in that time, I would have said, yep, I'm saved. I believe in Jesus. But my life did not look like it at all. God in his mercy, in spite of me, God in his mercy brought me to Bible school where he taught me these truths of Christ literally being our life. I'd never heard that before. Maybe I'd heard it, but my ears were, I was deaf to it. My eyes were blind to it. I didn't trust in Jesus. And all of a sudden, as we're, at, as we're at Bible school and we're in the Word, we're in the Word 23 hours a week just for class time. God started to work. And I'm in class hearing that Christ not only is my life, but He's my wisdom, He's my righteousness, He's my strength, He's my joy, He's my breast, He's my peace. As I'm hearing these things, God is quickening my spirit. God is transforming my heart to the point where I was broken. I was broken over my sin. I was broken over the fact that, man, I had lived like a Christian for so long. But the reality is, guys, I think that if I would have died at any given point in the first 19 years of my life, I'd be in hell. I left Bible school with such a compulsion to preach and teach the truth of the gospel. Because what I don't see is Christ being taught as a person that lives in us. I see grandiose concepts of God and and, and encouraging messages that steward us to go out and and serve the church more and to serve each other better, but no strength. It's like a train on the train tracks that's saying, here, go this way, but no fuel for the train to actually go and to move. There's so many of us that that if we're not converted, then we're infantile in our Christian lives. Because there's not a hunger and a thirst for Jesus. There's not a hunger and a desire to know Jesus more. There's a story in in Acts where there's these magicians. And they're wizards or whatever you want to call them. And they're doing all this stuff. And Paul preaches the gospel to them. And their immediate response is repentance to the point where they burn their books. They burn everything. And those books were expensive books. They're like i got to get rid of this stuff. I'm following Jesus. And their lives are instantly different. So many of us come to faith in Jesus and don't change a thing. There's no, there's no fruit in our lives. We say we believe, but nothing in our life changes. We do the same things. We hang out with the same people. We, we watch the same stuff. We listen to the same junk music. There's no difference. If you look at us and you look at the world, what's the difference? The fact that in our religiosity, we come to church once a week, maybe, that we pray sometimes. Unbelievers pray. They definitely pray when they're in trial and temptation. They don't know who they're praying to. So what's the difference? If we really believe in Scripture, we really believe that Jesus is Lord, that he he died on the cross for our sins and he rose again, our lives are going to be different. There's going to be a zeal for Jesus. There's going to be a hunger for righteousness. There's going to be a desire to be in his word and to pray. 
We don't want Jesus. I don't want Jesus half the time. It's convicting. When I read scripture, if any of us just read scripture, just go through and look at the fruit of what a follower of Christ looks like. And we'll be blown away. We'll be so blown away that we won't think anybody's saved. Mark, Brian, and I included. That's the reality. Because we have lowered the bar to Christianity so low. We've made it ridiculously easy to be a Christian. And it is causing so many souls to be damned. We're to the point where, like Jesus says in Matthew 7, there are going to be several of us who stand before the Lord. And he's going to say, I never knew you. And we are going to be shocked. We What? For so much of my life, I lived for you. Exactly. We lived in our own strength for him. That's not what he wants. Jesus didn't die on the cross and raise again so that we would live this life in our own strength. We don't just need the grace of Jesus to forgive us, but we need the strength of Jesus to be active in us so that we may live a life pleasing to him, which in reality is a life where it is actually him living in us. In other words, as was commonly said at my Bible school, it takes God in the man for man to be the man that God made man to be. It takes God in the man. It takes God in you and in me for you and for me to be the man that God made us to be. If Jesus isn't alive and active in our lives, we're not living the Christian life. You see, we simply cannot live the Christian life in our own strength. We weren't created to. That's not the point. Paul's point in this text of be strengthened is not be encouraged, church, and go out and try harder. It's what he wants to avoid. The might, the glorious might is Jesus. Cease striving, brothers. Let Christ do what he promises to do and be the one that gloriously lives in you to produce the joy that only he can provide through the trials that he needs you to walk through so that he can make you like himself. The goal of the Christian life really is less of us, more of him. Dying to self, dying to sin, dying to our desires, dying to our pleasures, dying to our passions, and letting Christ live in us and through us. If we try to live this in our own strength, we are nothing more than the hypocrite who says, Lord, Lord, yet we do not do what he says. Let us pray. Father God, thank you so much, Lord, for your word. Lord, I thank you so much for your son that not only his sacrifice provided the fact that the provided the path for us to receive forgiveness and redemption. But Lord, the supreme grace of you that doesn't just abandon us after this profession and confession and repentance, but Lord, you send your son to live in us. That your son truly, literally dwells within the life of every true believer. Lord, so that we can live lives that are serving and pleasing to you because Lord, we can't in our own strength. We don't just need a makeover. We need a transformation that only, you can be, that only you can bring. Lord, we don't want natural change that's, that's produced by man-made efforts and striving. Lord, we want supernatural change brought on by your wonderful grace and mercy that causes your son to live in us, to live lives for you. Lord, I pray that we leave here today convicted, encouraged, and humbled to live for you through the ceasing of our own work, the dying to ourself, and the offering up of our bodies to you. Lord, cause us to be in the word, cause us to pray, and do as your word tells us you will do through your spirit.
Grow our faith, grow our adoration, grow our desire for you, for righteousness, for your word, and for your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.